Somebody left this up here during the children's story this morning. I thought that was kind of a nice addition to the service. In fact, it sort of goes with what we're talking about, so I think we'll just kind of leave it up here. It'd be kind of symbolic of some of the things we're talking about here today, maybe. I don't know. I think uh, if you've ever had one of those moments where you feel like you didn't really belong somewhere, or maybe you were not sure that you were really wanted, or where it sort of felt like to you that you were kind of on the outside looking in, kind of like what uh, Trace was talking about in the children's story this morning. Nobody has to describe to you what that experience feels like. It's not a fun place to be. It's not an easy thing to change. And it's really not as unusual an experience as you might think. What's more, it's also something we tend to be most aware of when it's happening to us. However, when we find ourselves in those situations where we are among the included, you know when we are on the inside looking out. Have you noticed how our sensitivity to that just kind of seems to change a bit? Our awareness is not quite the same anymore. Talking about those times when from a favorite vantage point, we see others on the outside and we discover that uh, it's sort of like to keep them there. And there's lots of reasons why that happens. Some of them are rooted in more obvious fears that we have about things. Some are rooted in more subtle prejudices. And some are just pragmatic or self-serving, simply because we think it's to our advantage to keep them there, or to our disadvantage somehow if we don't. You know, I think probably one of the more truly memorable moments of my growing up years surround those times when we used to gather together as kids for the ritual practice that we called picking teams. Something, by the way, that can be experienced quite differently depending on whether you see yourself as an insider or an outsider. But you know how the ritual goes. Uh, somehow you choose a captain of each team, and then the captains take turns choosing people, one player at a time. Presumably, selecting those who are thought to be the most valuable players first, and then, of course, kind of working yourself down to the, the less desirable players. It wasn't always said exactly that way, but anybody who's ever been through that process and was not among some of the first chosen know the experience quite well and know what I'm talking about. And so, as I was thinking about all this the other day, I asked my wife, who some of you know chairs the phys ed department at the school where she teaches. I said, okay, Lael, so, so what's up with all this? Why do they do that? Then she reminded me that, in fact, they don't do that. That among people in her profession, that practice fell out of favor many, many years ago. And that if an administrator observed her or any of the other teachers in her department doing that sort of thing, she would expect to be written up for it. So it's not the kind of thing you want to see in your evaluations. All of which, of course, blew my illustration for this morning. <laughs> Except maybe unless you happen to be one of those people who do remember when that kind of practice was in vogue, and it was more common. In which case, I would have invited you to reflect not only on what it might be like to be among the last selected, but maybe just as significantly on the experience of what it's like to be among the first, or maybe about what it is that's going on inside of the people that are doing the choosing. 
questions that are certainly not limited to the now apparently extinct practice of picking teams, but questions that are really worth asking in a lot of other areas of our lives as well. Because even when we gather together for the same general purpose, we don't always experience things the same way. And we don't always fully appreciate just how different our experiences can be. And it's not always necessarily because we intend it to be like that, although sometimes we do, we wanted to tell the truth. But often because we're not always fully aware of the extent to which we have been influenced and shaped and maybe even prejudiced in ways that impact the way we relate to each other. I think one of the most vivid images of this that I have ever seen was shared with me last summer by my brother-in-law. We were staying with my sister and brother-in-law for a little while in their house near Hermitage, Tennessee, which is just a few miles outside of Nashville. And one afternoon, he was taking us around to see some of the historical sites nearby. And he said to us, there's something I want you guys to see that you won't find in any of the travel brochures. So we said, okay. He drove us to a small Confederate cemetery attached to a very old little church. I think we'll have a picture of that up here in just a second. Also happened to be right next to where a facility had once stood where wounded Confederate soldiers had lived out their last years during the, the war. If you look in the back of the picture, you can still see the old church standing there at the back of the cemetery. There was a monument in the cemetery here, you see in the next picture. That was to the soldiers who had served and died in the Confederacy and were buried there. And around this monument, if you look all the way to the back to the left, you can see it sticking up there. The grave markers were arranged in patterns of concentric circles that worked their way out from the monument. My brother-in-law didn't say much to me at first. We just kind of stood there. And then he asked me if I noticed anything unusual about the markers. Do you see it? It's actually a very powerful visual once you pick it out. If you look off to the left-hand side of the picture there, you will see there all by itself, outside of the circles, one lone gravestone. You kind of, the next picture kind of zooms in on that just a little bit so you can see it better. And so, of course, we decided we'd walk over and take a closer look and see what this was. And here's the inscription that we read on the marker. Ralph Ledbetter, and then it lists that he was a Confederate 1st Infantry Division soldier in the Tennessee Division there. And then in parentheses, in big bold letters, is a statement that was anything but parenthetical. Slave. And as we stood there for a while and looked at that marker, and the significance of what we were seeing slowly began to sink in, it was truly stunning. Here was buried a man, perhaps, who had of a sense of devotion or honor to those who probably regarded him as little more than maybe beloved property, who had a kind of personal loyalty that led him to set aside even an interest in his own freedom, who was willing to risk his own life to fight alongside of those who felt that they owned him. When it came time for him to be buried, he is not even allowed within the circle with everyone else, as if he had been fully one of them. Instead, his grave marker stands alone, 
outside of the circle and is clearly labeled slave. But the saddest thing of all is the date on the grave marker. You could almost understand this if he had died in the Civil War. The date is 1939. 1939, 74 years after the Civil War was over. Despite what had been won and settled and proclaimed, clearly some things had not yet been fully realized. Somehow, in the minds of those who inscribed his headstone, he was still outside the circle. Well, and while I suppose some might argue that the fact he was allowed to be buried in a Confederate cemetery at all might indicate some movement in the right direction, in a nation that declares that all people are created equal, and in a part of the country that is supposed to be known for its southern hospitality, this is probably the most emaciated, pathetic kind of generosity I have ever seen. And as I stood there looking at that headstone, I found myself thinking, Somebody around here needs to have a conversion experience. Somebody needs a conversion experience. You know, for the past several Sabbaths now, we've been noticing how Luke, in the book of Acts, has been unfolding the story for us of how the first followers of Jesus, a group of people whose roots went very, very deep into the heritage of their Jewish upbringing, went about the task of trying to figure out how to take and to live and to proclaim this message about Jesus and extend his ministry into the world. They were trying to become a church on purpose. Beginning with chapter one, we talked about their call to mission, and we noticed that with that call came a caution that they didn't get ahead of themselves. They told them to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit came and to be prayerful about what they were doing so they could be sure it was the spirit and not just their own agendas that were empowering them. We noticed in chapter two at Pentecost, in concert with all the other metaphors of, script, of the spirit's work that we have in scripture, we saw how the spirit began to breathe life into this community of believers so they could now extend the message and ministry of Jesus into the world and do it speaking in a way that people who didn't understand them could now understand the gift of tongues even those outside of Jerusalem now would be able to hear the message, hear it in their own languages. We also noticed that this whole process was not without its growing pains. There were high points in healing that took place on the steps of the temple. There were low points where issues of honesty and integrity had to be addressed. There were organizational issues that had to do with the fair distribution of food that had to be worked out. We saw how unifying public favor one day might turn to scattering persecution the next. And last week with the conversion of Saul, we saw how the church was called to rise to the challenge of realizing and even embracing the fact that those who God was reaching out to were not only their friends and allies, but also those who had been their sworn enemies. He just never knew who the spirit might drag into church something that must not have been entirely easy for those who were the elder brothers in the movement, some of them perhaps in more than one sense of the term. But as we discover in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, as the Spirit comes with power, 
whether it's like a quiet breeze that just kind of moves us along, or whether it comes in much louder, more dramatic ways and shakes us up a bit, church becomes a place where you can expect that conversions are supposed to happen. And not just to those on the outside of the community, but maybe even more importantly, to those who are already on the inside as well. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to go with me there to Acts chapter 10, where we see this dynamic very much at work. Acts chapter 10, and beginning with verse 1, this is the scene that opens for us in Caesarea. It says, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what is known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. So we meet Cornelius, ranking officer in the Roman army. But more than that, Luke tells us that he and his family were people who were responsive to the work of God's spirit in their lives. They were quite genuine and quite generous in their response. This wasn't just a head thing for them, it was a way they lived. But having said all of that, even though he may well have been respected by the Jews, there was still this about Cornelius. Cornelius was very much a Gentile. And even from the church's perspective at that point, Pentecost notwithstanding, he was on the other side of the fence. He was not really one of them. For all the talk about the gospel going into all the world, in reality, at this stage of the game for the early church, most were still thinking that that meant going to the Jews in all of the world, not just to anyone. If you wanted to become a Jew first, and you know, maybe that would be okay, but this was not for Gentiles. Well, Luke goes on in the story to tell us how one afternoon while Cornelius is praying, to his surprise, an angel shows up and scares the bejeebers out of him. I mean, he's really kind of worried about this. And so finally he calms down a bit, and he says, the angel says, okay, Cornelius, I just want you to do this for me. I want you to take some of the men that work for you, and I want you to send them down to Joppa. In Joppa, you're going to find this guy by the name of Simon Peter, who is staying in the house of a fellow who is Simon the Tanner. I want you to go and find him, and then bring him back here. And so that's what Cornelius does. He gets his guys together, he sends them off to Joppa, and we pick up the story again here with verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went out, went up on the roof to pray. And you know the story of what happens here. Luke tells us that Peter was hungry, and while Peter's up there praying, he has this vision or dream, we're not exactly sure what it was, but it was very vivid and clear to him in which this huge sheet full of all kinds of what were apparently unclean animals are let down on the roof in front of Peter. And then there's this voice from heaven that says, verse 13, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. To which the voice responds, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, to appreciate the full 
irony of what's going on in the story. It's almost amusing at this point. You have to pause just a minute and think about what's happening. For here we have Peter, who probably in his own mind is feeling a bit progressive and even radical, because he's staying in the home of Simon the Tanner, who according to Jewish ceremonial law and kosher law, because of his profession, is already somebody who's unclean and not somebody you're supposed to be hanging around with. So here is Peter, already feeling like he's the radical progressive guy, standing on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house, defending before God the same laws that he is already violating on purpose by being there. So you wonder, what in the world is going on with Peter? All of which is a great reminder of just how messy and inconsistent our own spiritual lives are at times. How our thinking and how our awareness, how the things that we believe don't always fully mesh in all parts of our lives and in all aspects of our behavior. One moment we may be advocating values that are part of God's kingdom, and then we don't even seem to notice when we're arguing against the very same values in the next context. Sometimes it takes us a while to finally get it too. In fact, in Peter's case, according to verse 16, God had to actually repeat himself three times. It seems it usually took Peter about three times to catch on to anything challenging. And even after all of that, it seems that Peter's still kind of unsure as to what this is all about. We read in verse 17 that while Peter's still wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found where Simon's house was. Then in verse 19, while Peter is still thinking about the vision, the Spirit says to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, for I have sent them. And so as the story goes on, Peter gets up and he goes downstairs. He meets these three men that have been sent to him from Cornelius and Caesarea, and he listens to their story. He hears about how the angel had appeared to Cornelius and what had happened, how they had been sent. And very slowly it appears that the lights begin to come on for Peter. He begins to understand what the vision is all about. And it's evidenced by what happens next, a truly remarkable thing on his part. Look at verse 23. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. You know, it's one thing to reflect and model the ministry of Jesus by staying in the home of Simon the Tanner. I mean, after all, Simon was at least a Jew. But in this staunchly Jewish community, to invite Gentiles into your home as guests, this would have been going way too far for a whole lot of people. But Peter had begun to understand the vision and Peter's life was already starting to change. And so the next day, Peter, who is responsive to what God's Spirit is doing in his life, decides that he will return with them to Caesarea. But Peter does something very, very wise at this point. He doesn't go back alone. Scriptures tell us that the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. He took the brothers along so that he wasn't in this thing alone. Well, we read on in the story, Luke tells us that they arrive at Cornelius's house. After the introductions, Peter discovers that it's not only Cornelius that is waiting there for him, but the house is full of other Gentiles who can't wait to hear what Peter has to say. 
And so Peter, who never you know, turns down an opportunity to have an audience, launches into this opportunity to address the crowd. Look at verse 28. Peter said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. Kind of left out the part about the argument on the roof and God having to repeat himself three times before he came without any objections. But anyway, Peter goes on, verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. And then Peter goes on and begins to share with them the story of the gospel. It's an incredible picture here. And as Peter warms up to his presentation and is at his most you know, profound moment here, I would imagine anyway, waxing eloquent, Luke tells us in verse 44, this is what happened. While Peter is still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just like we have. You know, I am convinced that this is one of the great conversion stories in the book of Acts. And what is so striking about this story is not so much that Gentiles are being converted to the faith. In fact, these Gentiles were already living in response to God's spirit long before Peter and the brothers got there. Rather, it was Peter and the brothers, perhaps the rest of the church in Jerusalem, who were most in need of conversion. They were the ones who needed to have their blinders removed so they could begin to see the way that God sees. That taking the gospel into all the world was not just about them. It was not just about people like them or making people just like them. It was not just an insider thing, but it was a willingness to recognize that God is already at work in the world in the lives of people and in places that we may not have even considered before, and recognizing that it's our privilege to go and be a part of that. In fact, one of the things that I find really interesting in this story is that even before Peter has a chance to finish what he's saying, the Spirit is pointed part out on these Gentile believers, making it clear that they were already in, that they were already accepted into the family, even before they had heard the whole message even though they came from different backgrounds, even though they had different heritages, even though they probably didn't even see things quite the same way Peter did, came with a different worldview, God makes it clear that they don't take a back seat to anyone. And now they too would be taking up the work as well of learning how to speak about Jesus and his kingdom in a language that others could understand they too are given the gift of tongues. I think what we see here as we look at this passage is God, through his spirit, raising up a church that is inclusive on purpose, who recognizes that God is much bigger than the boxes we try to put him into. Well then, okay, does that mean that anything goes then? 
course not. The scriptures are very clear about what defines a genuine Christian community and what doesn't define a genuine Christian community. The church worked through those issues long ago. But what it does mean is that we need to be very attentive to those ways in which the Spirit may be stretching us, maybe, beyond those areas where our own pious blind spots lie. The ideas that may be shaped more by our unique cultural image, our national image, our political heritage, shaped towards a greater responsiveness to the values of God's kingdom, so we can begin to see people the way God sees them, not as a Jew, not as an Adventist, not as an American, as the way God sees them. Sensitive to the ways that we relate to others so that we don't make some entitled insiders while we leave others on the outside. Sensitive to the way we place the headstones which indicate who gets to be included in the circle and who doesn't. Sensitive to those places where we're invited to continue to experience conversion in the places in our own lives that we need it. We don't have time to look at chapter 11 this morning, but it's interesting that it goes on to tell the story that just reminds us that doing this kind of thing is not a cakewalk. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. When the church in Jerusalem heard about Peter's trip to see Cornelius, they were definitely not impressed. In fact, they were quite resistant and when Peter showed back up in town, the brethren let him know that he had done the wrong thing. He was heavily criticized, which is why it was such a good thing that Peter had had the brothers from Joppa along with him. There were a lot of voices that had been along on that trip, a lot of people who had seen how God had acted and been involved in the lives of people, and who could stand alongside of Peter and say, this was something that was of God. God was working in places and in ways and among people that they were not accustomed to. God was working among people and in places that they had been conditioned to think were the places where only your enemies and people who posed threats to you hung out. But eventually, flawed ways of thinking begin to give way to the movement of God's spirit as we continue on in the book of Acts. Not that there were not some bumps in the road along the way, and not that Peter did not experience some significant moments of relapse himself that we read about later. But as a group, they continued to choose to move forward. They decided that they would continue to live in a response to where God's spirit was leading them. They decided they were going to become a church that was inclusive on purpose. And I've got to say that I believe that the work of the Spirit in that regard still continues today. But perhaps because we are still a lot like the first followers, it is still one that tends to meet with fierce resistance. I think for some of us, God could drop a whole zoo on our roofs and it would probably still elicit a lot of resistance from us. And yet, if we were willing to listen, I believe that we hear a God who still invites us to come to Caesarea and see to consider that maybe even committed followers of Jesus may still have some places in their lives where conversion can happen, where maybe we still haven't quite got it all right just yet, where what we know in theory can finally catch up to how we actually live in all the dimensions of our lives, 
so that we don't get trapped in circles that we create that designate those who are in, those people that are like us, and take those who are at least like us, who we've been conditioned to fear and regard as enemies, or that we have somehow in some other way labeled as unclean, and place them on the outside. And so as I pondered this passage this morning, I find myself wondering about a lot of stuff. I find myself thinking about ritual team picking practices and about the people who do the picking, what happens to the people who are picked. I think about people like Ralph Ledbetter and those who carved his headstone. I think about visions on rooftops and the power of prejudice even among believers of the us versus them mentality that so many of us are quick to buy into in the name of things that should never be used to justify that kind of thinking and how people feel justified in acting toward others once they've made that justification. I think about the myriad ways that we resist the work of the Spirit that tries to lead us in another direction. And I think there's a lot to mull over here makes me wonder if perhaps it is still true that some of the greatest conversion stories are those that happen within the church as the Spirit begins to lead us toward becoming a church that is inclusive on purpose. I guess we'll see. Oh God, with whom there is no east or west or south or north, we pray that you would help us who are so slow to learn to be open to the guidance of your Spirit that you might make us a community that is truly like you, reflecting your character on purpose. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.